Hello and welcome to Soul Ring in the 98. My name is MTG Galaxy and I'm here joined by... Friglish T Ghost, also known as literally a ghost that pushes over candles. And EDH Academy. And recently, Mauro or Mark Rosewater, the head designer of... Ma- or the head person, I guess, of Magic R&D, uh, released two episodes of his Drive to Work podcast in which he discusses possible commander rules changes. So there were some pretty, I guess... Um, divisive rules changes discussed in his drive to work podcast and we're going to talk about them and give our takes on them right now right here so tune in to soloing in the 98 on morrow's um drive to work podcast commander rules changes so you guys want to start the first one what are we going to talk about first so one of the topics the original topics were mentioned in one of his head-to-head polls that he did on twitter Back in December, so you could see the full list of them there and how they ranked. But one of the topics for discussion was removing the maximum deck size. Uh, currently, right now, um, all commander decks have to be exactly 100 cards. Whether you have one commander or two in the command zone, the rest of the main deck has to fill it out to 100 even. Um, removing the maximum, ha- removing the maximum deck size will allow you to play. I believe the only card that really matters about this is Battle of Wits, where at the beginning of your upkeep, if you have like 200 or 250 cards in your library, you win the game. Um, But otherwise, I don't think there's any other card that really gets turned on by having um, no maximum deck size. Um, In the podcast, Mark Rosewater had stated that he would not change um, this particular aspect of the format because having a nice, clean... 100 card deck size makes it easier for people to get into the format and have a basis from which to build their decks from, especially because of the wide card pool that we have in Commander. Yeah, I definitely agree with... Well, go for it. (laughs) I think that um, removing the strict, you know, it has to be exactly 100 cards thing would only be detrimental. I think that adding the possibility of a Battle of Wits deck is not worth the cost that it would have because the mistake that everybody first learning Magic makes is the 61-card special. Uh, Or, you know, I'll just throw in a couple extra cards. It doesn't really matter that much, but it does. It matters significantly. And I've always liked that Commander had to be exactly 100 because you couldn't run 101 cards even if you wanted to. And I think that most of the time, what will happen from it is people running 102 103, 104 card decks that just hurts or just causes more random chance. It just causes more variance. Yeah, I mean, I just don't think that this would add much to the format. And it kind of like uh, Elder Dragon Highlander, as Commander was first called, Highlander is kind of a base format where it's 100 card singleton is where like the base Highlander is. That's why Elder Dragon Highlander is what it is, and it's the rules of Commander. As well as uh, Canlander, a Canadian Highlander, it's 100 cards, all have to be singleton, and then there are some other rules to it. And I think if we do change that rule, then it would be kind of taking away from Commander's roots, as well as if new players want to get into the format, there is the kind of, I guess, barrier of like, oh, I can have as many cards as I want, da 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 And it would kind of just be a hindrance to new players because uh, there is like math into it, but... Basically, long story short, if you want more cards, you have a less chance to get the cards that would actually be best in a certain situation. That's why tutors are so good in Commander. 
And I just think that it's daunting for new players. Hey, I can run as many cards as I want. It's easier just to kind of force them to stick to 100 cards. And it's the same reason, like, if you know Mark Cruz, what a story about Annihilator. Like, that's the same reason here. But, yeah, I just don't think it adds enough to the format for there to be, like, the questionable little bit of it. No, those are all some really good points. And I agree with every one of them. Like, just to be able to play Battle of Wits and Commander... Like, we gain so little from making that drastic of a rules change. So, I like it the way it is, and a lot of people do. So, I don't see why they should change it at all. Uh, the, one of the other topics what? that was... I'm sorry, were there any other um, thoughts no, or comments no, on it. the... Okay. Uh, the second topic, or the second topic we'll be talking about, um, is the banning of Soul Ring. Now, one thing that Mark Rosewater said at the beginning of episode of the first episode of this podcast... Of, this particular topic series was that he is only a designer at Watsi. He doesn't play a lot of commander, but there's nothing that Watsi can do to actually change the rules because the rules committee is the one who actually maintains the rules of commander and does all the ban list stuff. But what he did mention is soul ring serves a very unique function from a game design standpoint in that it allows for players to quickly get past the very boring turns one through three setup and help get you to the middle, more exciting part of the game quicker. Now, I believe, I personally believe that Soul Ring, while it's still fast mana, is not the card we should be looking at if we're looking to get rid of fast mana. I do believe that there are far scarier boogeymen in the format. And considering that Soul Ring is being printed so often and so regularly um, across the Commander products, it would be an incredible disservice to new players. And it would also kind of break like the card of the format. There are people who say that Brainstorm is the card that makes Legacy. Like without Brainstorm, Legacy just wouldn't be Legacy. And there are many who would agree that Soul Ring is that card for a Commander. Yeah, so what I think about this is, uh, if you think about it, the three big, like, fast mana pieces in our format are Soul Ring, Mana Vault, and Mana Crypt. And the three, like, um, those are, like, the biggest fast mana, like, pieces in the format. And Mana, uh, mana Vault, sorry, isn't as big of a deal as a lot of people think it is. It's more of a ritual than anything else. It's kind of, I'm going to give from one mana on turn one to five mana on turn two, and then I'm back to three mana on turn three, and so on and so forth. And I'm going to be taking damage um, through the, like, but on one damage on my draw step if I don't want to go down a mana to untap this, this thing. Mana Crypt, however, is literally just a soul ring for free that has a 50 50 chance of bolting you on your upkeep in a 40 life format that's basically nothing and like you can do the argument it's it's both ways whether you want to look at it it's hey people the only people who can get access to the mana crypt are the people who can afford the 200 dollars for this card and if we're, if it's not going to be accessible to everyone then we should just have it banned because it's basically uh, for like, it's basically a better soul ring in a lot of circumstances. Uh, but however, people could also argue that, 
hey, because it's so expensive, not as many people have it, so it's not going to be seen as often as compared to Soul Ring, where you can pick up a copy for 4 or $5, which basically everyone has access to. So I don't know. What do you guys think about this like Mana Crypt situation? I think that Fast Mana is one of those things that we could try banning all of the pieces, but I don't know that it, it does enough to stop the stuff that people don't like about Fast Mana. I think that that's more something you need to talk about your playgroup with. Where it's like, part of the conversation about when you're talking about how strong your decks are is talking about how fast your deck can get online. And does Soaring contribute to decks getting faster? Absolutely. But it's also like way more affordable than Mana Crypt. And I don't think that banning Mana Crypt would solve much either because it's still only one card out of 99 and it's good. It's extremely good, but people that run that kind of stuff are, are trying to like accelerate it out are already playing really high power decks. Nobody's playing like Tree Folk Tribal with Mana Crypt in it. So I think that banning fast mana like that is just silly because it's... I think that if you don't want to play with it, then don't play with it. And I don't think it's that much of a hindrance to just talk about it with your playgroup instead of banning it outright. I have to agree with Friglish on that one. Like As much as I dislike being more on the casual end of commander and playing on magic the gathering online more in a casual sense to see someone go you know land mana crypt like i was playing actually earlier just today and one of my one of my opponents who happens to be a buddy of mine he had he got mana crypt on turn two ready and potentially to play kenrith of uh, the return king on turn three so i have to agree with friglish in that the inclusion of mana crypt in these games are more of a discussion you have before it starts because hitting mana crypt will hinder kind of to an extent but it tarnishes a bit of more of the style and the flavor of cdh where the whole purpose of that end of the format is to run the most efficient the most competitive and strategic decks that you possibly can and being able to get two mana ahead of other people who can just win the game at the drop of a hat, like that's a huge thing that we can't just take away from them. I yeah, think that there would be a thing. better oh. conversation about banning these type of rocks if they were consistently a problem in CEDH, like Flash is. But I don't think that there's enough of a problem with it in Casual Command. I don't think it makes for unfun games like Upheaval does or stuff like that. Yeah, so, so that's the one like, thing I wanted to bring up. CEDH, everybody has access to Mana, mana Vault, Mana Crypt, uh, Soul Ring, Mox Diamond, Chromox, all this stuff. Literally every single deck has access to it. And CEDH, this is a format where we're talking about it, literally every single blue deck. If you want it to be ideal, <coughs> sorry, it has to have a copy of Time Twister, which is a $2,800 card. And literally every single person has access to a Soul Ring, which is a deck literally every single, uh, which is a card literally every single deck in CEDH wants. So I think that if you are talking about taking Soul Ring out of the format, it would be hurting the chances of a lot of like budget CEDH decks to compete. Uh, the third topic that was discussed during the podcast on Drive to Work was the idea of non-creature, non-planeswalker legendaries being your commander. Um, the idea that legendary things like Sky Sovereign, the legendary vehicle from Kaladash, Legacy Weapon, 
to, to some extent, people may want to argue that Orberg to Yogmoth should be a commander. Um, but to go over it quickly, Maro felt Mark Rosewater felt that um, turning your commander into something that isn't a person takes away from the emotional connection that you have with the deck. Like having a planeswalker or a commander or a legendary creature as your commander, there's a emotional connection you can make that I guess in a sense you can emulate, you know, what they're all about. Like if you're into um like Captain Sisse or Teferi or Gerard or even on the other end like Revan or Yogmoth, like you can like channel in that emotional connection with them and with non um non sentient being things i think is the technical term with non sentient things it's hard to make that connection um do you guys feel like we should be really needing non creature non planeswalker legendaries as our commander like i don't i can't think of a i think th um there was like one enchantment on edh rec that was listed as a commander but it says it's banned i forget what that one is but i think it's from uh, alara block uh, Maelstrom something? Maelstrom the Nexus? The one that gives all your things Cascade? Maelstrom no. Nexus? No, it wasn't Maelstrom Nexus. It was a... I can't remember what it was. It was a Naya. It was just a regular Naya enchantment. Um, can't think of... Oh, uh, Aria of the... That's what a is creature it? from Cold Snap. Hold on. Now I'm um, um... Great. What is that card? I don't see it on ADA Trek. Yeah, it's just at least a Naya. It's not on here. No, whatever. Uh, let's just go to this topic. I don't really think it's necessary because uh, I agree with Morrow on this. Um, one of the appeals of Commander is, yeah, you get this person or Planeswalker leading your army into battle. Like, yeah, I get this Atali dinosaur leading all my big dragons, Eldrazi, whatever, into battle. And it's just like, yeah, I have a tomb here in my, sitting in my command zone. Sure, I have this big ship. We need someone to crew it. I don't know. The ship can't crew itself. Like, it just loses, like, especially, as I mentioned earlier, for new players, it kind of makes them lose, <laughs> uh, it loses a lot of appeal Sorry, for Galaxy. them. Um, it's just like, I can have literally anything, just then why would I want to choose, like, here. one of these other things that I'm forced into? And, like, one of the things about Commander is that the restrictions placed actually sometimes make it more fun, and I think people should lean into that more than trying to break the restrictions. Uh, I'm actually going to go on the opposite side of this one to an extent. I think that there could be uh, a conversation about like a curated list of things that make sense as commanders that we can like allow into the format because we, we can already put like can be your commander on stuff like planeswalkers. There are certain things that I think would make sense as commanders, even if they aren't creatures. The one that comes to the top of my mind is uh, um, Elbrus the Binding Blade transforms into Withengar, it absolutely makes sense for a bunch of cultists to worship this knife that contains their demon overlord and they want to try to free it. Um, so I think that that it might be difficult, but hey I think guys, that there can be a conversation about like a small curated list of um, non-creature, non-planeswalker commanders that have enough flavor justification to be commanders in their own right. Might be I mean, a little yeah. more difficult... And I don't know if that, you know, if anybody else would agree with that. But I think that if we wanted to include them, that would be the best way rather than just blanket saying 
any legendary permanent can be your commander. Any legendary spell can be your commander. I mean, you could also do the Sheldon Manory thing and say, hey, if your play group wants to do it, then you can just do it. Like, there's some things, like, I just look up legendary, there are, like, a little under a thousand uh, legendary creatures. There are almost 1,300 legendary permanents, so that would be adding 300, like, new possible quote-unquote commanders. But some of these, like, just getting started, Aetherworks Marvel, that's a legendary artifact, would that be your commander? Maybe, I don't know. Chroma's Memorial, right? Just, like, random stuff like this, not adding, that would already, that would basically add all of the Planeswalkers as commanders. Uh, that would kind of just, I guess, grandfather it in. So it would just be adding all these planeswalkers too, as well as like all this stuff like Black Blade to a Forge, like Bantu's Monument. Like, sure, you could worship the Monument of Bantu, but why not just Bantu, like, worship Bantu himself? Yeah, that's. Yeah, that's why I think that there definitely need to be like a, a curated list or. Like you said, maybe just like talk about it with your play group. I, I mean, I play with a play group that allows somebody's playing a squirrel deck, um, with a bunch of like unsquirrels to make sure that there's enough squirrels to get the deck going, and nobody's ever had a problem with it. So maybe it's just a matter of finding the right play group that wants to, you know, try out specific things. Yeah, yeah I think. Any um, other comments on this one? No, I was just going to top it off by saying that. Um, the Sheldon Menory rule that Galaxy had mentioned earlier, I believe, is rule zero, where you have the discussion with your playgroup ahead of time whether or not those cards are allowed. That's functionally what Morrow was going is exactly going to say for having Planeswalkers as your commanders, having silver bordered cards in your playgroup. Actually, he wanted. If he were in charge, he would have actually made a sub-format for silver-bordered cards that worked exactly like Commander, except silver-bordered would be in the carpool. Um, certain cards from silver-bordered sets will be on the ban list. But I think for several of these, for a great many deal of these, um, one can simply fix this by doing Rule Zero. But um, we'll go over those a little bit more as we go along. Um, for this next one, I'm going to group two of the topics together because Mark Rosewater was addressing the same weakness within the format or stream or the same strategic weakness. And that is the removal of commander damage and the changing of infect. So as of right now, if a player takes 21 points of combat damage from any player's commander, including their own, if it shifts control to somebody else, they would automatically lose the game. Um, also, as far as infect goes, the way that rules work now, if a player gets 10 poison counters, they automatically lose the game. Now, when poison was first introduced, 10 poison counters was exactly half of a player's starting life total. Well, now that player's life total is starting at 40, some people are arguing that infect is now incredibly powerful because it's no longer half of someone's life total, it's now a quarter. Now, Mark Rosewater's comments were very simple in that Aggro strategies and commander are at such a heavy disadvantage because they're having to deal with three opponents with strategies that more or less work best when dealing with one person at a time, which is not something you can easily do in a multiplayer format. So his argument is that by taking away commander damage and by increasing the infect total that you would need to kill a player, you would actually be hurting aggro strategies even more than they already are in the format. So I want to talk about the place, the poison rule change. 
or rather the infect rules change right away, is I think people, there, there are two groups that come to people saying that the poison life total or the infect life total needs to be higher than 10. And that's um, people who are just don't like infect in general. And there's a lot of people who just don't like the mechanic at all and they just want it to be worse. And they have never actually like seen a play, like an infect based commander deck or specifically people worried about one of three cards, which is Triumph of the Hordes, Blightsteel Colossus, and Scytherix. Um, can't remember if he has a title, but Scytherix. Scytherix the Blight Dragon. The Blight Dragon. Um, they're the only three cards that I think are really like competitively strong in Infect, can you know, kill you out of nowhere. And I think that of those three, only one of them is really like maybe an issue which would be triumph of the hordes because it can come out of nowhere and instantly win the game for four mana but all of the rest of the infect creatures suck they're like three mana two twos with no abilities or three mana two threes with no abilities excuse me that's a three mana one two with flying a five mana two two three with flying two mana two one like no you're right like they're generically like lower power they're just not good even like the rares are like it's like a four mana four five with infect which yeah if you translate it is like a four mana eight five but i mean like the creatures just aren't that good and there aren't that many you kind of have to play if you wanted to go all in on infect you have to play some really bad creatures to do that so i think that if if we were trying to talk about the poison thing being or the poison counter being increased i think the better talk would be is Blightsteel, Scytherix, or Triumph of the Horde's a problem. Because the rest of the infect cards aren't a problem. Even with, like, proliferate and stuff, I just don't think that they're a problem. Yeah, Every so Negazar player listening of... to this is quite upset over the missing of Pharisees and Glistening Oil. Because I know that a big finisher in Negazar decks is just enchant him with one of those and then wheel twice. But, I mean, that's already a combo deck, and the deck should kill you long before that I mean, comes it's a three in card, but... it's a three card combo you need your commander and two other cards there's like fifty-six thousand three card combos that include your commander i don't or think that that's a problem either because otherwise we'd have to just start banning commanders left and right there is crafted exoskeleton but that's an equipment and that is a that's another piece of a puzzle that could be easily removed if you build your deck moderately well because you should be running that artifact it and enchantment like... removal to get rid of it yeah, and it also costs like four to play and two to equip, doesn't it? That's that's not nothing. Something On top like of that. that, if it becomes unequipped from the equipped creature, you have to actually have to sacrifice it. So it's not one of those yeah. things where you could just simply play hot potato with the infect equipment and you know bounce around like that with like Lin and Shikari and stuff like that. Um, me personally, um, I was actually a huge fan of infect. That was actually one of the decks that I wanted to start playing in Commander. And I was on Scryfallen and the Gatherer looking at every single creature with Infect, trying to find a way to get a commander to cover all the bases. And I think I was at the Mimeoplasm for a minute before figuring out the mana base when I was like six months into the format. It just wasn't going to happen. But like Triumph of the Hordes, I feel, is no different than Overwhelming Stampede or Craterhoof Behemoth. Or something like that, where it functionally is just, I cast this spell, you know, if my creatures get in, you know, this game is over. I mean, games have to end. Like, you can't just have this perpetual, you know, sphere of parity where no one's going anywhere anytime soon. And that's how green can get in there and win. Um, I do have to agree with Friglish on this one in that 
it comes down to is Triumph of the Hordes, Plysal Crosses, or Skitherix an actual problem? And if it is, then discuss it with your playgroup. I mean, if a Skitherix player is managing to beat everyone else out, that's either a really well-designed and very competitively designed Skitherix deck, or the playgroup just hasn't figured out a way to adapt to it. Same with Blightsteel Colossus. They're both creatures, minus Blightsteel having destructibility, but you know there are creature answers to them. Yeah, so the one thing that people like don't realize is that people always talk about burn, right? Like burn decks and EDH. They normally have to do 20 damage to face to win, right? Now you have to do 120. It's basically the same with Infect, right? So sure, Infect normally has to deal 10 damage to win. Now they have to deal 30 damage. And the thing about Infect is... It no, like Infect is kind of one of those all-in decks where you have your thing, you go all-in, try to get it done... Normally what happens is you kill one person, maybe you kill a second player, and then you just die because you don't have any cards in hand. And as uh, Academy mentioned, you are playing these crappy creatures that don't really do anything other than give poison counters. And yeah, for also fun fact, I once got killed through a Teferi's Protection by someone proliferating poison counters onto me. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's, that's, that's great. That's, that's pretty hey, good. Go, moving through time and trying to transport to different planes doesn't cure your Phyrexian infection. That's how we got Phy uh, new Phyrexia in the first places, because Karn didn't have enough antibiotics. These Phyrexians, man. I hate them. The worst. All right. But yeah, long story short, I don't. Th I think it's completely fine. I think the people who are complaining about it are just salty that they got killed first to infect. Yeah, I have to agree on that one. Uh, a couple other topics that Mark Rosewater had mentioned was having a different mulligan rule in Commander versus the rest of the other formats, as well as having a wish board. Um, just wanted to go over mulligans real quick. So um, Commander started off with the, I believe it started off with a partial Paris where you would draw your seven, then you would send any number of cards you didn't want back into your deck, then draw up to seven, and then you repeat it until you had your hand. Um, then when it went to the Vancouver Mulligan, which is the Scry one, Commander followed it. And then when London, which is the current one now where you always draw to seven, and then you bottom deck a number of cards equal to your number of mulligans, Commander has always followed it. And some people feel, my playgroup included, that the London Mulligan can kind of push, um, push a playgroup into a very specific style of play. Like my the the issue with my play group is that we have a couple of members that always will try and find the ceiling of whatever rules you put in their way. And so the concern was that if we put in the London Mulligan, now all of a sudden everyone's a fan of Grinzo and all of these other combo decks because they're always able to draw up to seven. But that's something we've ruled zero. I don't think that Commander is in a such a fragile state that we don't need to follow um, the mulligans that all the other formats do. I mean, what I mainly do is... Do you guys know what a limb duels mulligan is? <laughs> I've never no, heard it before, it but guess. if you know the card Lindol's Vault, you get an idea. Yeah, yeah, so basically it's you draw your seven. If you don't like it, put it down on the table, draw another seven. This is basically done just so you get a playable hand in the least amount of time possible. 
right? Like we kind of have like a honors system where don't try to do that just to just to get, find your combos. Like if you if we're playing like a CEDH game, we use the normal London Mulligan, put cards in the bottom, etc. But if we're just playing for fun, we just want to get a game. Uh, like we just want to get a game going, try to find a playable hand in the least amount of time possible. So that's kind of what just what we do. I think that this is one of the most the easiest rules to rule zero. I have actually never sat down at a commander table and not discussed mulligans before we take them. Even when we get a new player at the shop that I play at, the first thing that they ask is, how do you guys do mulligans? Because for the most part, unless you're playing like really competitive decks or really competitive meta, you want your opponents to play. You don't feel fun winning a game of commander because somebody, you know, had to keep a bad five and missed a bunch of land drops. It's just like, well, that just kind of sucked. So I think that this is one of the easy ones to just say, just rule zero. I, every playgroup I've ever played with has rule zero mulligans. Yeah. I think the sentiment can... I'm, I'm sorry, um, colleagues, are we going to say something? No, I'm fine with that too. Um, I think rule zero also applies a bit to the wish boards. Um, very early on, I had a, I had a player who was running... Um, Najila five color knights, and he had asked me, "Hey, um, do you think it'll be okay if I use glittering wish, which will allow him to grab a multicolor card that he owns from outside the game and add it to his hand?" Um, the wishes, there's different names to them. They grab different types of cards, but they functionally allowed you to go into your collection, grab a card that you wanted to use, and play it. As magic has evolved. This and seeing competitive play like we're seeing in Pioneer, um, it's now expanding itself to your exile and your 15 card sideboard if you're in constructed formats. In Commander, we don't have a sideboard, so as of right now, wishboards do not work. Um, although one may argue that it could be fine, um, the concern that I had with wishboards is that it causes one to build their decks differently in that they could hide halves of their combo outside of their deck that they don't have to worry about milling or losing from cards losing it to cards like Praetor's Grasp and all they have to do is just run a bunch of these cards like Fae of Wishes and Masterminds Acquisitions to where it's like okay well you Praetor's Grasp you couldn't find combo piece A I have combo piece B in my hand I'll just grab it from my um, sideboard play it out now that we have cards like Thassa's oracle like that's even further but what do you guys think of having a wish board um i've heard people saying as little as three cards some up to 15 um is that something our format really needs okay so my thing about wish boards is that so there are two of my friends that i play with that have wish boards one of them is uh, a Yidris Spells deck, and basically he was just, uh, he couldn't find if he wanted to play Teemo or Grixis, so he just mashed them together and plays Yidris. He has Fae of Wishes, Glittering Wish, Masterminds Acquisition, and Burning Wish in the deck, and it's like, it's fine, like, the I think the best card in it is Stunning Reversal, uh, which, uh, don't worry about it if you don't know what that is I, but i think uh glittering wish not that it matters too much but glittering wish is green white yeah it is um no i did i say glittering wish yeah you did, you did but i think it's because we were talking uh, about it earlier 
probably. I figured uh, I'd I mean, just head some comments off at the pass and be like, no, 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 we know. It's it's green okay. white. He meant something else. <laughs> yeah, I'm do- talking about the. Um, I said burning wish and whatever the blue wish is, the fine instance, whatever those are. So cunning wish. Um, yeah, cunning his wish. His tenkrat side would like it has like a cult like cultivate as a backup Kodama's reach in case he can't find it. He goes like turn two burning wish and a turn three Kodama's reach from his sideboard or whatever, <laughs> and they're all like harmless cards. But, I love that. Like <laughs> burning, such a burning wish play for pattern. cultivate. I absolutely love it. Yeah, but so the one uh, problem with it is when people grab hate cards from their sideboard, like. Uh, I have a friend who has a Grixis Super Friends deck, and he runs one of the new Karns, and he has a Karn board, and that oh. Karn board contains Graftigger's Cage, Pithing Needle, and Sorcerer's Spyglass. Oh. And those are the only cards in the Karn board, and I just, I'm not the biggest fan of that play pattern where, hey, I'm playing Alesha, cool, I'm going to grab Karn and go grab a Silver Bullet that I basically just tutored for. And you can't really... So you now you have to find a removal spell to go deal with that. And wasn't even in my deck to begin with and whatever. Like, stuff like that. I just... I'm not a... Fa- like, I'm... I like uh, wishboards when they're used to help fuel your own game plan rather than stop your opponent's game plans. Uh, I personally don't see any problem with wishboards because of the limited number of wishes that exist. Yeah, you can recur, recur them. But I think that, like... I mean, with the, the, the Karn example... He Yeah, he's one slot for three cards, basically, but those three cards are very similar in nature, and really he could have just put one of those in place of Karn, and he'd still be running the, the, the hate piece. Um, yeah, but he just say, gets he a little bit pithing, more... say he had Pithing yeah. Needle in place of Karn, but suddenly he wants a Grafticker's Cage, like he gets his yeah. pick between the three. Correct. I think it, it basically just lets you increase your deck size by a little bit on the constriction that these cards are not available unless you have the wish for it. So, like, if you got rid of Karn, those three cards are now unavailable to him. Like, if you Praetor's, uh, Praetor's Grasped Karn out of his deck, now that wish board, that Karn board is just worthless. Um, and I think that, I mean, you could recur wishes, but that's really mana-intensive. I don't really see a problem with wish boards. I think that we should keep them smaller as to not break the, you know, not make it ridiculously over 100 cards. I think 15 seems like a lot. I think three to five sounds like a fine, like a fine uh, compromise, but I don't really see a problem with it because of the number of wishes that exist. Yeah, sounds fine. So the next one that we're going to talk about is a life total change. Uh, Academy, you want to talk about this one? Absolutely. So... There, so commander, as it is a multiplayer, each player starts off with forty life. Because players have so much life, this can lead to longer games. Um, I think some of the shorter commander games, assuming doesn't someone doesn't just run off with it, can probably go in the range of a half hour or forty five minutes. But there are some games that could last hour and a half to two and a half hours. And so there has been some people who have been asking, well, what if we reduced the starting life total? And when Mark Rosewater was commenting on it, he feels that right now there's so much inertia moving from all of these years of having 40 as a starting life total that to suddenly come in now and change it, it would do more harm than good. Now, 
He did admit, though, if if Wizards of the Coast was in charge of Commander from the get-go, there would be some testing done at that time to see if 30 or 35 would be a way to be able to kind of accelerate these games. Because as he puts it, one of the weaker points of Commander is game lanes. Like, if you have someone who has a deck with a lot of consistent answers to threats on the board, games can go on for a really long time. And I know of some people who just will not concede out of games to a fault. Like, I remember a game lasting like 45 minutes to an hour longer than it needed to because the members of the pod just would not concede. And they just wanted to see it to the bitter end, even though the fast food restaurant they were playing at had closed like 45 minutes before the game actually ended. So I think 40 is a good life total to start at. It gives people time to develop their board states, get their plan going, and not have to worry about an aggro player coming in like, okay, I ramped really hard and went super wide. Like, insert elf commander here. I went five creatures by turn four, two anthem effects. Now I'm swinging at you. I apologize. Your turn four play was a fire mind vessel or a sad robot. I guess I am killing you now. Like, I think 40 is a fine life total. I don't know why people are wanting to change that. Yeah, 40 is fine. Like, I think one of the appeals of Commander is that uh, games last longer and you have, like, more of a social aspect, like time with your friends. You're just hanging out, playing, like, a nice long game of Commander. And I think reducing it to, like, 30 or, like, 25 or whatever they want to reduce it to, I think it just kind of goes against what the format, like, stands for. It's just, like, a fun game night. Uh, I think that there's not really a benefit to lowering the life totals. I mean, I guess if anybody was going to be talking about it, it'd be like burn players wanting an easier chance at burning out their opponents. Um, and I also think that if the argument is games take too long, your group just needs to find better ways of ending the game. Your your win conditions need to be better. Yep, that is certainly yeah. one way to look at it. Like figure out a way to get to your end game quicker, maybe cut out some of your top end for a little bit more ramp or card draw on the lower end. Um, I know I've seen decks all the time with like these huge like spot like six plus mana bombs, but then so little ramp to get there that it's no wonder they feel their decks don't work or take so long to win is because they're trying to get you know they're trying to get to the moon in a sli- in a in a catapult. Just, you're not going to get there anytime soon. Yeah, um, a topic that I haven't heard a lot about but apparently is a thing is the changing of partner attacks as it stands today there are a certain number of legendary creatures that either have partner or partner with that allow that opens the possibility of you to have two legendary creatures in your command zone as the rules stand now whenever a commander is cast from the command zone when it goes back it now costs two generic mana more to recast from your command zone now right now that commander tax as it is is tracked separately so if i happen to have tana the blood sower and krom ludovic's opus as my two commanders if i cast tana blood sower twice she will now cost eight mana going into my particular turn but krom would still only cost five what people are suggesting the change b is no matter who you cast from the command zone the tax of your commanders is increased by two 
So in this example where I've cost Tana twice, Kana will, Tana will now cost 8 mana to cast, but then Krom will now be 9 mana to cast, even though he hadn't been played throughout the game. Um, I don't think the partner tax really needs to change. I think some of this may be coming from an issue where you have Thrasios and Timna who are very competitively costed um, partners, you know, really you know, taking away games, you know, super quickly with their card advantage and with them being so cheap to cast and so strong utility wise that it's like you're like you choose the devil, you know, the devil you don't as far as your answers go in hand. I really, with the exception of those two, I can't think of another legendary pair that really, you know, pushes the boundaries that require this type of tax to be unified other than keeping track of it. But if we're already keeping track of commander damage in certain playgroups, what difference is commander tax? Uh, I think that the other commander pairing that I know I see competitive listed a lot are Thrasios and Vile Smasher, because Vile Smasher is also very good at ending the game. Oh, that is true. Vile Smasher is another one that can be paired with Thrasios. Um, but I think that, once again, this is uh, missing the forest for the trees. Uh, I think that we're looking at... well, Or I guess maybe the other way around is we're looking at, like does do partners in general need to be nerfed do we have to have this commander uh tax different on partner commanders because they're so much better whereas maybe the issue is just thrasios was too good because i don't see anybody calling for the same type of thing with like peer and toothy or will and rowan kenrith krav and red does another seem, strong pair they don't really seem nearly as strong as like some of the other absolutely busted commanders that you have access to, yeah, there's, you know, we could talk about having um, too much card advantage by being able to start with two cards in the command zone. I just think that they need to be more careful printing partners so that we don't get stuff like Thrasios, who is just too aggressively costed. But I think that if there's a problem, he's the problem, not partners in general. Yeah, agreed. Galaxy, you have any thoughts on the matter? No, not necessarily. I think I'm fine either way. I don't play partners too much, and I think that that's just, like, severely nerfing, like, partners as it is. Because, like, I know you have the argument of, like, Thrasios and Timna are, like, the best color combination of all time, but some of them, just, like, in a vacuum, they were meant to be, like, powered down, and so, like, some of the partner commanders, like Ikushiriki, she kind of just sucks on her own, not going to lie. Hey, 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 and hey. Like, if you put her with Sidra Kondo, <laughs> and now you got a completely different story. Darn the Siege Tower on board? Forget it. She's hitting hard. But I agree. Like, I see what you mean. Like, she's not as competitive, not even competitively costed. It's just her play style doesn't lend to those particular colors naturally, while Thrasios and Timna... And even to an extent, File Smasher are. So I think we do really need to look at the forest instead of the trees on this one. Yeah. Like, for example, if you have um, partnered, I know, I don't know if this would ever happen, but Thrasios and Ludovic Necro Alchemist, if your punishment for casting Ludovic is making Thrasios' cast more expensive, you would never cast Ludovic, ever. 
And I just don't think that's like a, like a good play pattern, I guess. I don't know. I, I just don't think it needs to be changed. They were designed with different um, taxes in mind, and I think it should stay that way. All right. Well, those are a little bit of the lighter and quicker topics that were mentioned. Um, these next couple of topics. Actually, no, we have one more quick topic, and that's the return of the tuck rule. So for those who don't know what the tuck rule is, before, I want to say it was before 2015 or 2016. So these are the early, early days of Commander. So when your Commander would leave the battlefield, whether it was go to the graveyard, get exiled, or would be returned to your hand, you as the controller of that card had the ability to put into your command zone. But before the change, the tuck rule made it to where if it was shuffled into your library, that's where it went. And that's where it stayed until you drew it, tutored it, or by some other way got a hold of it. When the tuck rule was removed, the library now became a zone where if your commander would go to that zone, you can now put it into the command zone. Um, To my knowledge, the only color that really interacts with putting things back into the library from the battlefield is blue with cards like Expel from Araska. Um, I know that Chaos Warp in red also does it to an extent, but I don't think there's enough cards or enough answers to commanders that really need the tuck rule to come back. There's also Oblation in white. Do you guys know what oblation is? Mm-hmm. Oh, oblation. Yeah, I apologize. I yeah. completely forgot about oblation. Oblation, I feel, for some reason, I saw oblation as just the white cousin of Chaos Warp, so it just didn't even factor into it, that in being a white card. So as a commander player, it's not terribly thought of too often. But yes, oblation does it. But what are you guys' thoughts on bringing back the tuck roll and making the library a zone that you can safely remove commanders for either for the short term or the long term. Like honestly, I didn't play uh like too much. Like I think I started playing back when I forget exactly when I started playing, but when I started playing, uh the Tuck Rule was a thing. And um like you like I didn't I wasn't into it that much. I didn't like know stuff about like the outside community. But what I, like, read up on was I used to have uh, Momir Vig, Simic Visionary. That was my very first deck, just, like, Simic stuff. Like, find good cards, chain them into other cards and whatnot. And back then, Spin Into Myth was the, like, premier blue removal spell. If you don't know what this is, it's a 4 and a blue, so 5 mana for an instant. Put token creature on top of its owner's library, then Fate Seal 2. So what you can do is you can put someone's commander on top of their library, and then, whoops, now it's at the bottom of your library. You won't be able to see it again. And... I don't think anyone would ever play this without the ability to deny people their, like, commander. Like, this is just kind of bad if you're just doing it to a non-commander creature. And that kind of leads into, like, this next thing is you build your deck around a commander. And for someone to just cast Chaos Warp, Ablation, Spin into Myth, Expel from Roscoe, whatever. And whoops, your commander is now gone and you can't, um, 
play like you can't play with it anymore. This is something Josh Lequire talks about a lot. Is he was trained to build his decks without his commander, like they could work without his commander working. And I just don't think that's as much fun as having your commander always available to you. Uh, I agree with that. Is that you? It's part of the format. You build your deck with your commander in mind. Even if you play with uh, build your deck to work without your commander, you still need you know you still built your deck with your commander in mind and. I think this is, again, similar to the last two things that we talked about, where it was, you know, I, I think that for most decks, having constant access to your commander through increasing cost is perfectly fine and part of the format. I think that if we have an issue with somebody having perfect access to a card, maybe it's that card that's the problem, not the rule in general. Because I think that for the most part, people want to play their commander and don't have a problem with other people playing their commanders. Yeah. Yeah, but it, it was something I mentioned. Um, all right, those are the lighter, quicker topics. Um, so we are down to the last. Um, yeah, we're down to the last two topics. Um, this this topic we're going to be talking about right now is a topic that has long been desired to be implemented, but there's a layer of game design that is not often thought about on our end as players. So as of right now, the way the game works is that if your commander would die, you have the choice, like full on just destroy, like someone played Wrath of God, destroyed. You have two choices. You can either send your commander to the graveyard or you can send it to the command zone. If you send it to the command zone, it is not treated as having died or been sent to your graveyard. So effects that would trigger because of that do not trigger. So if you're playing Kokosho the Evening Star, Yosei the Rising Star, Alenda the Dusk Rose, those effects, those decisions you have to make are now, do I put my commander in my graveyard and now have to find a way to either fish them out, reanimate them, bring them back to my hand, or do I put them in my command zone so I can then have an easier time of having access to them? Now, I believe what the community is wanting to see is a combination of the two, where your commander can still go to the command zone, but it still is treated as having died and gone to the graveyard. Um, just one quick thing that Mark Rosewater had mentioned before I um, asked my other two co-hosts what they think the concern that Mark Rosewater has is that when they're designing standard sets, which is where a large volume of our new cards come from, they have to design things based on what's going on in standard. And with the way that the moving the commander to the command zone instead of the exile library hand or whatever, because of how that works in the game, it is not intuitive to be able to combine both aspects of both a creature dying and a creature going to the command zone. Because the way it works right now, I believe now, if I'm wrong, my ghost will correct me immediately. The sending the creature to the command zone instead of the other zone is what's called a replacement effect. So you yep. choose one or the other. It doesn't count as the first if you do the second. Um, what do you guys think of the idea of finding a way to implement 
death triggers in the format is that something the rules committee is just going to come in and hand wave saying okay that's how it is now or do you think there's other layers to it that make this type of transition a lot trickier than we're making it sound all right so there are two cards in specific i want to talk about the first one is alenda the dust grows and this card is a commander and it's a very powerful commander that sometimes even works through the like dying exile dying command zone whatever rule uh, especially because you're in black you'll just let it go to the graveyard anyways to get uh, its death effect however there is another card rollesque apex hybrid that recently came out and has a bunch of text on it but the relevant one i want to talk about is when it dies proliferate then proliferate again so you actually have to let this go to the graveyard to get that effect and not just leave the battlefield and i know they have designed some recent cards like gerard weatherlight hero uh, the new one from the like the Boris commander and its template is when it dies you may exile it if you do blah 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 and that is a perfect like way to get around it because what happens is it dies you exile it it goes back to the command zone as a replacement effect from going to exile and you get set effect but if Rolesk was templated the same way is if it when Rolesk dies you may exile it if you do proliferate then proliferate again that would be an awful card in standard. Like, there would be significant downside. And Mara did talk about how in Commander products, they can work around this downside by doing what they did for Gerard. But it's just not really possible in standard sets. It's too confusing for, like, people who play just standard. And I'm with Mara on this. I personally think, while it would make Alenda infinitely better, I think there are other commanders that have the, like, have this as a significant downside as opposed to, like, this is a significant downside, and they're basically rendered unplayable because of this rule. Uh, I personally think that it's actually just as unintuitive that commanders don't die right now, and I think that it's worth talking about a way to have them die and then go to the command zone, because basically every time we play commander and somebody plays a wrath that counts the number of creatures that dies, we have to check, all right, does the card say destroyed or dies, because if dies the commanders don't count but if it's destroyed the commanders do count and you know people that are new to commander it's always the first thing that they have to learn in a game is your commander doesn't count as a creature dying unless you let it stay in the graveyard and it just feels unintuitive if your creature's destroyed even if it goes back to the command zone you feel like it still died even if that doesn't work that way in the actual rules i think that that they should try to find some middle ground maybe it's you know at the beginning of your upkeep if your commander's in the command in the graveyard you can or in a zone other than your command zone you can return to the command zone or something like that i don't know um but i think that that something needs to be done so that your commander should be allowed to die because it's just i think it's just silly that it doesn't work that way what if they made it a land what if they like going along what you were saying like i think the easiest way to be able to do something where you allow for death triggers to occur without having to, you know, have a PowerPoint slide describing what's the difference between destroyed creatures and dying creatures, um, you can just have it as a land, like as a land that I'd attach for colorless or whatever colors, and then maybe like two tap, um, return your commander from exile or from your graveyard into your command zone. Something they can just print in a commander product. They don't have to worry about balancing it for standard. Although, to be fair, I just realized now they could probably just put it in a brawl deck and in one specific brawl deck and then 
we end up with the arcane signet scare yeah where we all automatically think it's going to be a staple of the format and everyone's going to be running it and it's a ten dollar it's a 15 ten dollar pre-order and then a month after it's released it's like five bucks but i do agree they I think it was like a 30 dollar pre-order at some point oh yeah very early on it was super yeah. expensive to get i actually thought i would uh, never be able to own arcane signet but i guess the the hype died down and People stop worrying about it. You want me to hook you up? I got 16. You want me to hook you up? I got you. Wait, excuse me? (laughs) Uh, 16. Wait, do you actually? Yeah, there are cards like that that I collect so that I have enough on hand for, because I have like 34 EDH decks. So I have stuff like that for if I'm building new ones or if somebody else wants to start the game. Or it's just because I collect them because I also have 76 soul rings and uh, 126 copies of Spawnwraith. Spawnwraith? I want to get to 100 soul rings so I can become Sonic the Hedgehog. That's fair. That's wait, fair. Why do you ha- wait, why do you have over 100 copies of Spawnwraith? Uh, because Spawnwraith makes copies of itself. When it deals combat damage. Oh. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I run I run the Shadowmore version in the decks that I have it in two decks. Um, and I run the Shadowmore version in that deck. And then I have 126 copies of the Jace versus Vraska dual decks one. Because they were like... 13 cents a piece if i bought them in bulk and now i have enough that i never have to worry about it how many have you had on the battlefield at one time like what was your cap uh i think i got to 58 because one player was just like not in the game and nobody had a board wipe but one player just like was not playing defender so i hit them i just kept hitting them with spawnrith and then by the time that player died i just had an army going over and they could block to kill some of them, but, like, the rest would get through and propagate. And I never even got to play Azuri. It just, he <laughs> just, like, didn't care. I just won the game with Spawnrith. <coughs> All right. So, you guys have anything else about the dying? No, I think that... Dying effects? No, I just, I, I think that this is one of the things that I feel very strongly about that they need to change. I absolutely think that... Not having dies is ridiculous, and it's something that absolutely needs to change. Yeah. yeah. All right. On to our last rules change. Academy, you want to explain this one? Absolutely. All right. So the last suggested rules change is that hybrid mana be changed to be allowed to be played in monocolor decks. So I believe the earliest rendition of hybrid mana symbols was either in Ravnica, City of Guilds, or Lorwyn. I forget my standard timeline of sets to know which one came first. But basically... It was OG Ravnica. It was Ravnica, City of Guilds? Okay. So Ravnica, City of Guilds introduced this concept that you can pay one of two different types of colors of mana to cast a spell. What this did was it allowed players to kind of dip into where two colors intersected, especially for the ally colors. So the idea behind hybrid colors was to give you access to a certain effect, keyword, ability, power toughness ratio, whatever they wanted to give you. They wanted it to be accessible to players who both wanted to play only one color. Well, let's say, for example... Shoot, insert example here. Um, crap. Sorry. Ever shrink? 
Ever, um, what colors are they? Red, black? Uh, black, white. Ember Strike is uh, white, black. All right. So with Ember Strike, was it? I'm sorry. Uh, Ever Strike. Ever Strike. So with Ever Strike, the idea behind it was that you would be able to play it in a mono white deck or a mono black deck. The emphasis on or. What's happening right now is hybrid mana is interpreted as being the colors inclusive. So when you have a black or a white card, when you're checking for the color identity, it sees the mana symbol in the corner. They see white and a black there. So it rules it to be a white and a black card. Now, what Mark Rosewater's concern was is that when they are designing hybrid mana cards, which I didn't know about until I listened to the podcast, they actually treat the cards as monocolored. They do not treat them as requiring two different colors when it comes to playtesting. Because the concept is to be that it doesn't matter which color you pay for it because the effects, the two colors that you can pay, the effect would show up in either color. It just happens to be that they both can do it, so let's make it accessible to both. Let's not make it just a white card or just a black card. You know, it's accessible to both. It fits within the theme of the set. Let's do both. So Mark Mark Rosewater is predicting that at some point, the for, or if nothing changes, our format will actually have a full-on clash with what Wizards is doing with their standard set and the way we are interpreting how hybrid mana symbols works in our format. Um, what are you guys' opinion on hybrid rules, on hybrid colors? Do you think we need to see that change? Is there enough of an argument to suggest that if we made certain cards accessible to monocolor decks that we will see an improvement in how they play the game. Okay, real quick. So, uh, quick rules clarification. So for Everstrike, this is a white-black hybrid card, right? Yes. Would it be able to be played in black-red decks? Yes. If okay. the rules you just so, changed, yes, it would be playable in a black-red deck because it would be seen as a black card. Okay. Or like a white green deck, whatever whatever you'd call it. So I was discussing with this this concept with a friend uh, a while ago, and we were kind of just like looking at all the hybrid cards, just like at one point, and both like most of the hybrid cards, how they work is they do an effect that either color can do, but just on the hybrid card. And then we were like, yeah, all these are pretty mediocre, blah, blah, blah. And then we both stopped on a card, uh, Swans of Bryn Argyll. <laughs> and do you guys know what this card does? Absolutely. Whenever damage is dealt to the swan, it's it's prevented. And its controller draws two cards, I think. Saffron all uh, has several whoever videos dealt of the damage draws that many. Right, exactly. Yeah, whoever's dealt the damage draws that many. So the key about this is that it's four mana. Two, hybrid blue-white, hybrid blue-white. So you can play this card in a mono-white deck. And we were both like, what? <laughs> this, is a, this is a staple in every single mono-white card. And this used to be a modern deck. You would play Scred, and Scred deals damage to any target equal to the number of snow permanents you control. Oh, sorry, target creature. And so with that, if you have three snow permanents and a swans out, Scred is modal lightning bolt slash ancestral recall. 
which is pretty insane if you think about it. And this could go in and slot into any mono-white deck. And if you want to, you could build a Boros deck with, like, this and then all the Lightning Bolt effects just keep drawing cards. So this is one that I thought was pretty sweet. Uh, I didn't really see anything else that was too, like, color pie agnostic. I feel... I didn't mean to cut anyone, but I feel that there are two cards that, for me personally, are on the edge. The first one, I believe, is... I forget the name of it, but basically it has retrace and it gives you an extra combat step. My concern about it is that it's hybrid red-white. White does not really have access to extra combats. They have access to making their creatures stronger. They have access to interacting with attacking and blocking creatures during combat. But to my knowledge, there isn't a mono-white card that says take an extra combat. Now, we can go through an entire laundry list of red effects that have extra combat steps, even to the point where one of them has to be cast during combat, bef- I think it's during combat, after attackers are declared or something like that. It's Savage Beating. It's an incredibly strong card. But I feel that that particular card breaks out of White's kind of, not pacifist, but fair method of combat. The um, other- if I if I could interrupt for just one quick second because I thought I read this so I went and checked real quick. Um, while there is not a card that is mono white that allows you to have extra combat stacks, um, it is part of White's mechanical color pie. It's just not something they've done yet. Um, but it is tertiary and white uh, to have an additional combat step. Well, so that- it's that- something that- they can do. They just haven't done it yet, according to uh, Mark Rosewater's mechanical color pie article. And the card Uh-oh. is called Waves of Aggression. Yeah, that was the, Thank the you. Okay, so considering that it's tertiary, that could definitely explain why we haven't seen it before. Okay, I, I then that's my that's my fault for not researching that. Um, no, that's okay. I don't think a lot of people knew that because it's not something they've done yet. In the same way with like white is tertiary and counter spells, but we've only ever seen two of them. But that doesn't mean that we're not going to see more in the future. It just means that we haven't yet. Um, These. But, it's not color pie breaking. It is something white can do. It's just not something white has done yet. Then that explains that. Because I know that in the podcast, he said none of them are breaks. There were no breaks within the color pie within those cards. There are bends. But the one, I guess I never knew. Now that we're talking about tertiary effects and colors, we have spitting image for four hybrid simic hybrid simic to create a cop a token copy of a creature on the battlefield with retrace i didn't know green had the ability to copy creatures i thought that was strictly blue um a little bit of red i know i think that's secondary in red to be able to create clones um but otherwise i thought temporary that was ones yeah right red creates temporary clones because nothing stays permanent in red that's why they get impulse draw um but i thought green didn't i don't th- i didn't know green ever got clone like strictly cloning effects i know that one weird pseudo example of that is permeating mass where whenever a creature deals combat damage to it it becomes a copy of permeating mass i think that's the only one in mono green that i can think of that's a clone-esque effect like i don't count progenitor mimic and i don't count uh, altered ego because they have blue like you need blue to cast them like blue is it, we're they just talking are... about spawn wife my guy <laughs> that that is a combat based token generation effect that is not a hey ugh. 
<laughs> Spawn right. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, so it was a card called. Um, technically, because it's making token copies rather than just clones, it is something that Green's allowed to do. Usually, I believe that the article Mark Rosewater said that usually Green clones its own creatures because you know there's a lot of creatures in the woodland type of deal flavor wise. Um, but making tokens of their own creatures is uh, absolutely in Green's color pie. I think can um, spinning image target opponent's creatures or just yours? Oh, I'm gonna double check right now, but I'm pretty sure it's any. I mean, for it six minutes, I would sure hope it's any. It is. It is it's, it's any. any. So that is a bend, but not a break. It is definitely a bend because it's a bend because. You have blue, which would be fair. Green, you want it to be your own, but since it's both, you are splitting the difference, and there's not enough evidence to overturn, to quote the NFL. Um, have so, you guys heard of the card Parallel Evolution? Absolutely. Uh, in case I don't know what it is at home, th- three green green sorcery for each creature token. Oh, for each creature token in play, its controller puts a creature token onto the battlefield that's a copy of that creature. Same with Second Harvest. Basically, it's copying all of the tokens. And this kind of a copy thing. Same with Polyraptor. Whenever it's uh, 8 mana, 5-5. Five, five, whenever it's still damaged, create a token that's a copy of Polyraptor. So green does have a few of these effects. They do. I think. I think my thing is that when I think of green... And I think of token production, I'm looking along the lines of Tendershoot Dryad, Avenger of Zendikar, Rampage and Baloth, heck, Nissa, Voice of Zendikar, where the tokens they're making are separate, a separate entity, even if they're not named, even if they're minor, it's a separate entity from them. They're not making copies of themselves. Now, I know Polyraptor is a thing that was really big in standard. And I think for like three months, there was a game breaking infinite loop where a red dinosaur yeah. would just perpetually be dealing damage to the new ones coming in. But that's neither here nor there. Yep. I guess, I guess there's a, then that again, that's something I'm learning now that green has, you know, deep within, you know, it's lines, like the ability to create clones. Now, given it wants to clone things of itself, which fits perfectly with, what changelings were doing in Lorwyn block, and I think there was even them in Shadowmoor, but the idea of being able to copy stuff of your own is um, is a thing in there. But those were the only two that I was really concerned about. Like I looked over the others, and I felt like there wasn't enough of an argument to state that they're like this, like like having uh, like having the War of the Spark Ashiok in a mono in a mono blue deck being able to exile people's graveyards. I don't feel the effect is like that breaking enough to warrant. Oh no, it's gotta be definitely Demir. It has to be in blue and black. So this is the other one that I feel very strongly about that. They absolutely should change uh, because I think a lot of the arguments against it just straight up don't hold up because of the other cards that are available in the, the format. So, for one thing, people talk about, like, oh, well, like, Spitting Image, even if it was a break, Commander isn't a place that cares about color pie breaks. People play um, Beast Within in, like, every green deck, and that is just a clear and obvious break. People play uh, Hornet Queen is, like, one of the premier green creatures is also an absolute break, and they think should not exist. 
Wait, was so, it Hornet Queen or was it Song of Dryads that Mark Rosewater said it was a break? I Horn I know Hornet Queen was. I don't know if Song of Dryads was a break or a bend, but I know Hornet Queen was because it's just a bunch of death touchers and it's like a bunch of flying death touchers in green. And he's like, all of those things together add up to a card that is not green. I know for what certain that he does best? not like Song of Dryads because yeah. it has the ability to deal with permanents versus being able to deal with creatures like Lignify. Even Lignify, I feel, is a little weird to be giving pacifism-like effects to creatures. I thought that a lot of what Green wanted to do was boost your own. Yeah. Um, and then in addition to that, you could also include uh, any blue card printed before Urza's block. Because blue's slice of the color pie was uh, all of it at that time. But nobody has a problem with those cards. In fact, you know, Beast Within is one of the cards that people laud as being super important to Commander. So the idea of being like, well, we don't want any hybrid cards because it might, you know, cause like a bend or a break. You clearly don't care that much about it or you wouldn't allow all of these type of cards. All of Planner Chaos would be thrown in the garbage. <laughs> and we're clearly not doing that. Um, and then in addition to that... Uh, People talk about, you know, from a design standpoint, the only difference between hybrid cards and multicolored cards is that hybrid cards can be are designed to be played in monocolored decks. They might have two colors on their card, but cards like Fracturing Gust or Growing Ranks are designed to be played in mono green or mono white. And if you're just saying that they're both colors and they shouldn't you know growing ranks at the beginning of your upkeep populate for two and two green green white hybrid shouldn't be allowed in a mono green deck or a mono white deck then hybrid cards as a whole to commander the the commander rules committee at least hybrid just shouldn't exist because its whole purpose is completely invalidated and i think that that's an extremely strong stance to take and i think that you would need a lot to justify saying hybrid mana as a whole should not work it just shouldn't be a thing at all and in addition to that they're clearly not that concerned about allowing hybrid stuff in the format because extort is allowed in the format because the hybrid mana symbol isn't actually in the rules text it's just in the reminder text and that just feels so silly it feels like they're they're trying to defend a rule just because they don't want it to change but like (laughs) it just seems almost indefensible to like not want this kind of stuff. In addition to that, it opens up a lot of cards that I think decks really want. Being able to f- play Fracturing Gust, destroy all artifacts and enchantments, gain two life for each permanent destroyed this way. Being able to play that in a mono white deck would be huge for mono white because it's such a good card and not being forced to play green or being able to put Evershrike, three mana, two black white hybrid, gets plus two plus two for each aura attached to it and you can reanimate it by putting an aura from your hand into play, paying its mana cost in an extra two, would be great in, like, the new Bant Enchantress decks, of which there's, like, seven different commanders to pick from. But because it has black in its cost, you can't play it in those decks, even though it was still designed to be both a mono-white and mono-black card. I just think that this is a rule that is absolutely silly and needs to be done away with sooner rather than later. All right, sounds good. Anyone else have any other input on this hybrid mana rule sharing? I I actually do. It's I'm going to cheat a little bit on this one. It's not specifically on the hybrid mana like specifically, but it lends itself into what happens if we did change it. 
So the reason why the way the thing the reason why they're ruling the way it is now is because they are looking strictly from a color identity standpoint. So for those who have lasted this long in the episode and don't know what a color identity is, you're looking at the co- the casting cost of the card and the rules text, not the stuff in parentheses, everything else. Whatever mana symbols appear in there, whether it's split or regular, that's your those are the symbols that can appear on your cards within your deck. Now, there are little circles on certain cards. There may be less than 30 of them ever printed that have these circles that are called color indicators. And the function of them was because when they first, when they made zero costing spells, the packs, they wanted to give them color. Now, back when this was done in Future Sight, they just strictly said, Pact of Negation is blue, Summoner's Pact is green, Slaughter Pact is black. Later on, they made it to where they put that little dot on there to let you know about it. The reason why I bring this up is because we now have cards that change color. We have an Avacyn that changes color. We have a Garouk that changes color. We actually have a land that goes into a black creature. When we change this hybrid mana rule... We may end up a can of we may be opening up a can of worms where we're now making an exception for one specific thing and then ignoring the color indicator issue. I just see that coming. I don't. Th- I think if we end up changing the rule, we won't have to worry about it because they probably won't even acknowledge it. Just like they're not acknowledging the desire to change hybrid mana now, but it is something that could come up. Otherwise, I think that I'm they gonna... just need to be. I, I think that they just need to be specific in saying that, like. You know, like with all things, we count the color identity, and then they call out specifically if the card has hybrid mana, it counts as either, but not both. It doesn't seem like a difficult thing to make very specific to say, if you're including a card like Fracturing Gust, it counts as green or white, but not green and white for color identity. Yeah. Up uh, until you get to a Lara block, but yeah. No, you're right. That. That, that's just a whole nother can of worms that we could open on another episode. <laughs> Anyways, thank you so much for tuning in to episode 2 of Solving in the 98. Here I am, Galaxy, joined by Frigglish and EDH Academy. And if you enjoyed, be sure to smack a like on this video and subscribe if you have not yet. Also, be sure to follow all of us. Our Twitters will be down in the description, as well as my YouTube channel, as well as EDH's Acad- EDH Academies. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll see you in the next episode.